Welcome, welcome everybody to Pritavo University number three. We see a lot of folks in the chat. Let's hear where you're from. We got some folks signing off already. I see Russ from San Bernardino. What's up, Russ? I see Jorge from Corona. Hey, I'm out in CA too. I see Ryan from South Florida. What's up, Ryan? And May from Tulsa. Hey, May. Charles from New Mexico. What up, Charles? And Cody out in Texas. Nick SD. What's that? South Carolina. We got a lot of Nicks today. <laughs> too many, too many names. Too many. Too we're, many. we're going by last names. <laughs> well, we got a lot of folks here. Uh, let's kick it off. My name is Nick. I am on the onboarding and education team over at Printavo, so I sell the thing. I might have helped some of you set it up. In fact, I know I did. Just seeing some names in the chat. Uh, and I'm also with my colleague, Matt. Matt has been in the industry for over 20 years. He came to Printavo this year to be our implementation manager. Matt, how's it going? It's going, going great. So first ground rules, everybody. We got two minutes for responses, no interruptions. Uh, just kidding. Um, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm stoked for this one. We've got uh, some, some buddies here that are just phenomenal folks. Uh, we've got uh, Nick Wood and Brent Gardner of uh, Graphic Source. Um, these guys, I've been lucky enough to know uh, for a while now. Uh, full disclosure, I even got to go tour their facility in uh, Bangkok uh, last September. Uh, exactly a year ago, pretty much. So I've been able to go see see what they do, and I couldn't think of any better people to have uh, just to have a good dialogue when it comes to uh, art readiness and, and just art in general. Uh, so yeah, without any further ado, uh, we got Nick and Brent. Guys, do me a favor, just give us a uh, uh, a couple minutes just about each of you and then what Graphic Source is and what you folks do before we kind of jump into the convo. Sure, I'll jump in first. One of the managing partners in GraphX, uh, we do a lot of turnkey uh, setups for color separations, embroidery, mock-ups. Uh, we've got over 350 staff company-wide, three different offices, uh, actually five offices, Dallas, Texas. That's where I am in our headquarters. We've got an office in Calgary, Canada, uh, Bangkok, Thailand, San Pedro Sula, Honduras, which most of the Printavo users, that's where their artists are. They do a kick killer job there. And then we've got uh, uh, an office in, in Pune, India. So we've been, we've been in the game for over 35 years, uh, pumping out production art, and it's um, it's been an interesting ride and a lot of fun. And, and uh, Nick has helped along the way to build the business up. So I'll let Nick talk a little bit more about his role with Graphics. Hey, I got to I got to say it's actually pretty awesome to see a lot of customers that are already uh, typing in on the chat. So it's kind of like our business card is is their success. So I've got a long, uh, long history with everybody on the screen. So I worked with Nick at his first Printavo trade show, which was down in Indianapolis, which was an absolute amazing time and, you know, crushed it down there. Um, I've known Matt for a very long time, uh, not only on the supply side, but then also on the Printavo side and actually running a shop as well, um, you know, Printavo hired the Yoda, just saying, like there is uh, the buck stops there in terms of, of info. And yeah, just had the pleasure with working with him at Second City on the graphics side. So just, uh, yeah, a ton of uh, synergy there. So and, and Brent Gardner, the best, uh, best dude in the world. So yeah, ready for this, uh, ready for this, for sure. Awesome. Well, we have a lot of digital art experts on the call. Let's start out with the easy one. Tell us about your workflow. If you were making a new uh, piece of art ready for print, what would you do? Matt, what would you do? 
Uh, so the first thing that I always like to really look at when it comes to graphic artists, uh, I mean, I've, I've pretended to be a graphic artist for a while in my life now. Um, and one of the biggest things that I've seen with people is uh, simple, right? But naming conventions, right? It's one of those things that you overlook, but it is so, so clutch. Um, so the first thing I do is make sure that you actually have your name and conventions figured out. Like if you're in a working file, I like to just literally start it with the word working, right? So working dash and then put the Printavo uh, actual order number in there, right? Uh, and so that way you know it's a working file. You're not going to mistake it for anything else. Um, so that's how I start off. I start off making sure my artboard actually has the correct title for it and that it's seamless and that if I'm doing it, I also have any other artists that I'm working with, be it a graphics artist or be it somebody else in-house or a buddy working remote, whatever it might be using similar naming conventions. That way if we're hosting on a server or whatever, we know what everyone's working on and we can actually keep it together. You always see a lot of the working dash, final dash, really final dash, oops, right? Like random, you're just like, dude, which one is it? You go through like that rabbit hole dive to find the, the stinking file you're working on, right? Um, so yeah, that's awesome. We just dropped a little link there for like a basic naming convention. Use that as a guideline. You don't necessarily have to run with that, but have it somewhere posted in your art department. It's like, how do I name this file? Oop, there it is right there, just to keep it clean and concise. Um, for me, that's the biggest thing is opening up your artboard in Photoshop, Illustrator, Corel, whatever it is. You have to name that file first thing, right? Um, so that and then auto save. Make sure you got your auto save functionality on. It's the worst. I'm sure Brent and Nick can tell me horror stories of not having that on, right? Where you get like three hours into pixel pushing and like, uh, taking a, a, a live trace and making it look pretty by fixing all the points, and then all of a sudden, like your computer crashes and you lost it all. It's like what? one of those fine, it's fine line. Where you're like, do I jump off a bridge now? What do I do next? <laughs> live trace is kind of a bad word with the graphics team. If if we, if we catch an artist doing it, it's uh, it's it's kind of a deal breaker for us. So we we definitely you know persuade everybody to you know they're they're click they're making the clicks, you know plotting every point, making sure that the the vectors are clean. So. Last thing we want to do is get a, uh, a live trace that's not going to work well in a rip. And then all of a sudden now you can't image your screen. So, uh, you know, that, that recreation is key doing it, doing it the right way the first time. Amen. Yeah. Precisely. Yes. I wish, uh, back when I had my small shop back in the day, you know, it's, uh, there was no graphics and it was, you know, scanning in, I mean, this was precursor to iPhone. So it was like, hey, this is what I'm trying to recreate. You'd have to put it on a scanner, take it into Illustrator. I mean, this was before CS and start building it out. And it's like two and a half hours in, you lose that file. It's like, yeah, you just, you're like, I'm done for the day. I'm going home. This is it. So, yes, yeah, scanning so, something at just, like 3,000 DPI, that alone takes like 30 minutes for those yep, scanners. And then, yep. yeah, booting like CS4 before they had the cloud, right? All that stuff, just the load time alone. You lose that, you're like, there goes an hour. Um, so well, yeah, so, uh, yeah. go ahead. You bring up a good point. You say the old school scanners, but it's not old school anymore, it's new school. So let's talk about what hardware do you need to make good graphic art? Oh man, so I, I, I'm i a big fan of everything. Uh, I'm also not, and I'll, I'll happily admit, I would probably be the worst employee for graphic source because I can get something dumb, but it ain't the right method to get there, right? So for, for me, the way that I work is it's a hybrid method. I'll do a lot of, um, I'll make a, a dirty, just nasty drawing. It's like, ah, it's kind of there. And then I'll go into an iPad. I'm a big, big fan of Procreate, even though I'm garbage at it. Um, and I'll bring it into Procreate and then I'll kind of like take it from there one step better, 
then I'll take it into Illustrator, then I'll really redraw it there. Um, but then I'll also, I, I'm a big fan of taking photos of textures. Um, I got like 150 awesome photos of textures when I was in Bangkok with these guys. Um, but when I'm walking around, I see a, an old uh, dead end sign. It's been in the sun for 30 years. It's got this cool crackling on it. I'll stop and I'll take a photo with my iPhone with that, zoom in close, bring that into Photoshop, grayscale that, right? Make it a, make it a bitmap. I'll overlay that in my Illustrator file, then I've got awesome textures. So for, for me, anything that'll get you a good file at the end of it is fine. Use what you've got. If all you have is an older computer, well, then just find what software will make it not crash and work with them that one. Um, yeah. So I, I, I'm a big fan of, of whatever keeps you interested and gets you there. I don't know what these guys would think, though. What do yeah, you think? I mean, I will say when it comes to art, I mean, right, however you get to the end result, it's ultimately going to help, you know, in your production pipeline is is the goal, right? But, uh, you know, there's a lot of variance with what your customers are going to give you, whether it be a napkin drawing or maybe they've got a decently resed image that you can work from pretty easily. But what happens a lot of times that we notice because we're, we're doing graphics for a ton of different applications, a ton of different print shops, is we'll get the art from a customer We'll process it, it'll look perfect, it'll match the original. And then it gets on press, the customer gets a shirt, go, this isn't what I wanted. And it's because they had another garment, another product that was produced by somebody else we're trying to match. So it's always good to ask your customers, hey, has this been previously printed? If so, can we look at it? Otherwise you're gonna end up making something, you might have 500 shirts that you've run and they're like, well, we're trying to match the shirt that we did three years ago. Can't always get one-to-one, but it's good to have that for context because to get pretty far down the road with this art that you've invested in and now you're realizing oh there's another garment that exists and we didn't even see that before we started the job yeah totally um so so what do you guys say computer tablet here let me ask a follow-up question what's the software i need we know the hardware anything that works but what about software should i just get an adobe license am i good to go there um Nick, I'll let you start with that one. I've got some things. What do you think, Nick? Yeah, I mean, you know, the 99% of the stuff that we see on a daily basis is definitely going to be the Adobe products. Um, we do get some CDR files. Um, and in a former life, I, I use CDR. So there's kind of like, you know, pros and cons to both. But I would say 99% of the time. Right? CDR, Corel Draw? Yeah, 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 precisely. Yeah. Uh, we do see some stuff, but like, yeah. I'll, Sorry, there are some specific rips that uh, that only work with Corel. So it depends on how the shop's set up. Like there's work that we do for Corel shops, an AI file just does not work in those pipelines. So we're having to output Corel files for those workflows. If you're just starting out, I mean, Adobe, there's probably more information on that. You know, you could YouTube, Adobe, you know, depending on what you're trying to do all day long and get enough education just by, by looking at forums, getting on YouTube, finding out what you need to do. I would say Adobe is the easiest way to go. You can get started easily, you know, 50 bucks a month, you get the whole suite, it's cancel anytime. So it's definitely a good way if you're not producing graphics now or, or not really sure. Adobe is definitely the most widely used and there's there's probably the most tutorials on those products over any other vector-based product. Yeah, Which and then file, yeah, file I'm sharing wondering. too, like getting, getting files between other shops, more likely to be an Adobe file if you are a shop that's looking at actually bringing in an in-house artist, you don't want to utilize an outsource aspect. You want to bring an in-house artist in. Uh, chances are you're going to find a better quality candidate 
uh, with somebody who has gone to, they've even gone to school for this, right? It's probably going to be they went to school for it and did Adobe. Um, so that's kind of where I think it's, it's the, the, the standard. Um, but like Nick said, I mean, I've seen some, there's actually some really awesome output features in Corel Draw that almost make certain parts of the output for screen printing easier. Um, there are some higher end plugins I've seen for Illustrator and Photoshop. You can also purchase that add into the, into there too. Um, but really it's, it's, it's going to be what's once again, what's easiest for you to use, what do you have access to and what can actually help make sure you got clean art to get to press. Now, Brent mentioned yeah. RIP software, RIP software, AccuRIP. Tell us about that. What do we need when it comes to that type of tool? Go ahead, Brent. Matt, you want to take this one, Matt? I'll take it. Yeah, that's fine. Um, so AccuRIP is a big, big one. Uh, that's one that's kind of become like the, also the status quo for the industry, right? Um, I love it. Do you need it? No, you don't necessarily need it, but it's going to make your life a lot easier. Um, some of the key functionalities of, of, of RIP software is like this is it's going to actually con communicate with your printer. Um, so if you're doing accurate, chances are you're still on a film printer, right? You got an Epson T3200 uh, or maybe you're still rocking a 1430 if you still have them, um, whatever, right? So it's actually going to communicate to the printer and it's going to help make sure it's outputting a solid dot. Uh, if you're using an all black ink cartridge system, which I, I would recommend if you're using one of those Epsons probably, um, or at least a photo matte black to help make sure it's opaque. It's going to help control the dot density. You can actually pull back the dot density to so make sure you're using just the right amount of ink to get you that opaque film without having to just spew ink more than you need to. And that's expensive. It's a consumable, right? So it brings that down. Also, it's going to help with uh, generating halftones for you. I love the fact that I can just go in there and I can, in Illustrator, select an area that I want to have it be at. And I can say, okay, I want that to be an 80% halftone. I'll just change the opacity to 80% in Illustrator, and I'll go ahead and rip that. It's going to see that that transparency that I put there. It's going to auto-rip that at an 80% dot. Um, now, sometimes you might want to overdo that if you want to have uh, different size dots, different LPIs in one file. Then you're going to want to still force that dot the traditional way. But uh, for most work that I'm doing, I, I don't want to have different LPIs in one output. I want to have just one standard dot that I want to go with. So just changing transparencies not having to force adopt the old school way, um, such a big, big time saver. Um, so I, I would definitely recommend that uh, if you don't have a RIP software yet, you are a pixel pusher yourself and you're, you're really outputting stuff. I would I would think about heading over to uh, to their website and we don't work with them, but it's uh, solutionsforscreenprinters.com, I believe is the website now. It used to be called Software for Screen Printers. They, they updated because they're doing more solutions than just that. Uh, but AccuRIP is, is kind of the industry standard. Uh, it's it, it, it's amazing, and it's one of those things where if you're actually outputting your own art, you should do it. Otherwise, you're getting art already ripped out for you from graphics or somebody else, then you don't need it, right? Um, but yeah, absolutely. We've got a, a good question, too, over here. Shop that charges art fees versus not. What do you charge? Ready to print versus napkin art? Ooh, um, I think that you should always charge art fees. Um, so, I mean, it's one thing to say that you're going to make a mock-up for them. That's usually part of the deal, right? That's already there. Um, if it's something simple where it's like, hey, I, this is the art, just change the words. If you can do it in, in three, four minutes and you don't mind doing it, then go ahead and do it. It's going to be a good user experience, customer experience, right? Um, but I'm not in the world of doing things for free, and neither should anybody else be. Um, I, I'm not a fan of a lot of those big crowdsourcing places like 99designs or Fiverr. Like where else in the world do you actually get people to work for free and then you decide you're going to pay them? Um, that's not fair, especially as a, as, a, as a graphic artist, somebody who's, who's trying to make ends meet. Um, so don't do not do anything for free outside of your normal scope of, of quoting an order. Um, that's why in Pertavo, we always have the quote approval 
and then we recommend an ARC approval. Uh, that way you're doing a quick mock, you're spending two, three minutes making a mock with their probably not a good enough art file, but you're saying, hey, this is roughly what it's gonna look like. Give me the approval, that way I know you're gonna pay for me to do work for you. And then you go ahead and you can put time into art or you can outsource it that way and charge appropriately. Um, so yeah, great great question in the, uh, the comments over there. Totally agree. Do not make art for free. Takes hours of labor. Um, Matt, you were talking about output in your films. So let me ask, I don't know a ton about it. If my art's good, my steps are good, that must mean my prints are good too, right? Uh, I'll let uh, Brent and uh, Wood handle this one. What do you guys think? If you've got good art and you've got good film, that's going to mean a good a good end result, right? Nick, this one's yours, buddy. Foundational, man. I mean, there's so many there's so many other aspects that go into that print. You know, it's uh, I, I hate to bring it to the screen side of things, but you know, what's your darkroom setup? How what's your exposure setup like? You know, so there's there's all of that that secret sauce that kind of plays into the that plays into that final print, but um, it's it's pretty astonishing. You know, some of the some of the printers out there with like a, a small little manual shop can produce you know award winning stuff. So it's really, you know, the the non politician answer is invest in your darkroom before it gets out on the press. You know, the more the more foundational knowledge that you have in there, the better, the more consistent your prints are going to be, the better results you're gonna have. So really, you know, lean on your distributors, lean on all the YouTube videos that are out there to really dial in. You know, it's the, uh, you can't build a, a solid house on a, a cracky foundation. So it's better to invest in the right tools prior to getting out on press, so yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean if, you're, if, you're, if you're gonna have a nice artist make a, a good piece of art, and then you're going to hang it on a wall that's built of hay. It's it's going to fall apart, right? right? So right. absolutely, absolutely, it's 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 in this this is a good a good segue in from our, our last print job at university, right? One hundred two, where we went over uh, all things screen with our, our friend Mike Ramirez, right? So this this is huge. I mean, even if you have the pros, graphics like these guys doing either art creation, art set, whatever. I've, I've used their service or services light for a long time. They are awesome. But if your screens are garbage. You're going to go to them and, and you're going to the photo and be like, hey, your, your steps are wrong or this looks like garbage. I, I can tell you from running a, a shop, running two shifts that had 95 to 98 percent of the work going through these guys uh, hands. Right. Uh, no, it was almost always I had something wrong. I had to I had to work on press. Uh, they, the batting average was pretty damn impeccable. Um, so definitely got to make sure that you've got good screens. You've got the proper humidity in there. You've got the proper EOM. Uh, if any of you aren't sure we're talking about this kind of stuff, definitely circle back to the 102 episode uh, to kind of nerd out of, about that for quite a while, quite a ways. Uh, but it, just having good uh, good uh, files, either for your film or even on a, a computer to screen, is only half of that marriage. You've got to have the other half really there, really clean, to make sure that the the time and energy going into making that art is is accurately represented. Uh, on the the T-shirt or whatever subject you're printing onto, uh, for sure. Going through this, going through the screen. Now, yeah, and that kind of brings us to uh, another question. Jorge in the chat asked, or not asked, but tells us, "Congrats, Jorge!" Yes, Jorge. That's a that's that's a big that's, a, that's awesome. Well, tell us, is Vellum good enough? Does Vellum work well enough? Tell us about that. Oh gosh, Vellum. Um, okay, so my years when I was I, I spent six years. Uh, as a distributor, right? So I was going into hundreds of shops throughout the year. And it was always one of those things where like, I had to like kind of learn to bite my tongue a little bit 
because they would call me like freaking out about like the white ink I switched them over to because they were using some like made in a bathtub, like nasty, thick white ink. So I'm like a real white ink, right? Uh, and they'd be like, well, nothing's lining up. And I'd go over there and I'd be looking at their actual outputs and I'd be like, let me see your films. And they'd come over with these like raggedy, greasy pieces of vellum. And I'd go to the light board and I would just take the two colors and on the light board, try to line them up and they couldn't line up, right? Um, so look, vellum is, is the cheapest solution, right? You, you can get vellum for like five cents a sheet. Uh, super cheap, but the problem is that you're you're putting that through a heating process, so that paper is heating up, which causes it to usually relax and expand at different amounts. So if you're going to have like a pretty good choke or a pretty good stroke that can handle that, you'll be okay. But if you're trying to do anything with fine line detail and line it up, you're going to be fighting all day long. I would say you're almost better off just going and buddying up with a shop near you that has film. And then once a week going over there with a thumb drive with all the files you need to output and then paying them to make films. Uh, it's gonna make a huge, huge difference. Vellum, like I said, cheap one colors. I can't argue with somebody who's saying they're using vellum for one color. If they're doing like big block text, no real halftone detail, and they're like, look, it's cheap and good enough. I'm gonna agree with you. It is cheap and good enough. If that's the niche you're in, the market you're in. Um, but if you're trying to uh, go on Instagram and you're following graphic source and you're like, how are these guys doing it? Well, I can tell you right now, they're not doing it with Bellum. Sure. What do you think they are doing with Matt? Do you, yeah. think you, do you think you need a direct to screen machine to compete with the guys print, making the best print? I don't think you need that. Um, I'll let uh, Wood and Brent jump in on that one though. But I honestly think that uh, a lot of times people will go to some a big expensive piece of machinery and they assume it does the job for you. I would be willing to hedge my bets that a if you put like uh, me and Mike Ramirez from last week and you gave us a film printer and then you took an average user that's like, oh, I bought an auto and I bought a CTS. If if you have people that are really paying attention, I can make a manual print look better than most autos can because we can put the time into it and use film. So it's not going to make you better. It's going to improve what you're doing by making it more efficient, um, but mm. garbage in, garbage out. So it, it's it's just gonna it's gonna make garbage faster if you're putting garbage into it. That's all it's gonna do. Guys, yeah. what do you think? From the graphic. Yeah, when I was on the distro side. We yeah, sorry. Go ahead, Nick. Oh yeah, I was gonna say you know some of the some of the prints that I've seen pulled off on film. You could have, you know, an award-winning impressions print, you know, with a CTS versus a film printer. The printer that knows what they're doing and, and has invested in that foundational knowledge, you know, there's 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 impressions, award-winning prints printed on film all day long. So it's it's really about that that foundational background. But I'm gonna volley this to Brent. Yeah, I mean, just to build on that, you know, we've been in you know we've been in a situation where we've been in the thousands of shops across the U.S. And they're all set up differently with all different types of imaging equipment and presses from manual to autos. Like Nick said, it's really, you know, learning how to utilize what you have to make the best possible output. And, you know, as, as Matt said, it's, you know, you're just going to speed up the process with better equipment. If, you, if you're garbage in, garbage out, it's, it's really a commitment on the printer side to leverage the equipment they have to make the best possible outcome. We've seen like Nick said, award-winning prints on all different types of setups. It's the printer's commitment to the quality of what they're producing at the end of the day. For sure. With that in mind, what are some practical tips y'all can give the listeners about how to output good film? 
Mm, okay, so I would definitely say that if you're using film, and you you probably want to get into some sort of RIP software. Like I said, Accurate, who's not sponsoring this, but it's kind of like the, the standard go-to, is a great one. There's other ones that are out there, too, so it's not the only one you can go with. But uh, I would definitely recommend getting into a RIP and then making sure you're using the correct type of ink uh, and the correct kind of film. Um, you can buy film from all over the place. I've seen it really cheap, really expensive. It doesn't matter as long as it actually... Uh, holds on to that ink. Usually it's going to have like a milky white coating on one side that's going to really uh, hold on to the moisture and not let it bleed out. You're going to hold your dot. Um, but making sure that when you hold that film up to a light source, you shouldn't see light, right? That's, that's the whole purpose. We're, 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 we're casting a, an actual shadow on the exposure unit. So if you're holding it up to the light bulb and you see light through it, putting it on an exposure unit lets it go through there too. Now, is it possible to still have that work out okay? Of course it is. But if you're trying to do one of those award-winning prints where you've got a like an 8% dot and you're trying to do a 12, 13, 14 color sim process with film, you need to make sure those dots are actually opaque and you're not getting light through them, getting light leaks and actually changing your dot size. You start choking your dot on exposure, it's going to not look great on press, right? Uh, old school way of actually making underbases, if we go back 30 years, was you would just take your, your aggregate of all the colors and you would actually expose longer because it would actually automatically light choke in. So that's how you had to choke before we had the computer to be able to quickly do it. So making sure you're not overexposing, uh, but when it comes to your film, make sure you got good film and an opaque dot that's actually staying there and not running off, not over bleeding uh, and not letting light come through is kind of the first, first, first step to success. Rent, Nick, what do you guys think? Yeah, precisely right. I mean, um, with when it comes to like the rip side of things, like like Matt was saying, when I used to uh, going way back in time, how I used to make a base was I'd I'd take my printed film and I'd stack another piece of film in there to kind of choke it down a little bit, which is you know <laughs> you're fighting you're fighting everything, but. Uh, Nowadays, we have the, the advantage of AccuRip and having all the support on that side. It's just, yeah, there's there's nothing better, really. So, yeah. Well, quick question from the crowd. Russ has a good question. He says he's got an Espen 1430, 13 by 9 sheets of film. Is it worth upgrading to a roll printer? Is that worth the investment? Yes. Um, here's why. So the 1430, you can no longer really even get parts for. Um, Epson has totally retired that model. The 1400, the 1430 uh, were the go-to to start a shop with. I have like three of them on a shelf somewhere just because they're like still clutch as a backup. Um, for a while, you could see them on eBay for like six, 700 bucks when they were like 120 new, right? Um, but I really, really am a big fan of the Epson Surecolor. I want to say it's the T3200. The 250 um being able to output a a large film is huge right uh take take the, the current situation that we're all in a lot of shops are really starting to get into printing bandanas now because first off bandanas are awesome they're a good marketing uh giveaway but also covid right you can tie a bandana across your face so a bandana on average is 20 by 20. you're gonna get two 13 by 19s and tape them together i've done it it sucks is it doable yep you're gonna have seams you sure are um, and seaming together is not the greatest. Uh, you can find a lot of these uh, larger roll printers on the used market um, for a lot of like offices that weren't using it for this aspect, but they wanted to print on whatever, right? 
So I'm a big, big fan of those. Being able to go to a 20-inch wide film is great. You can also save on film, right? A roll of film breaks down to be substantially cheaper than a sheet of film. Um, so it, it's much better. And then you can also make one big artboard and you can aggregate all your outputs on one artboard and then just click print and walk away. And that roll will just keep printing everything out. You cut it done, it cuts it, you go through and you cut it through. You're, you're wasting a lot less time also. So I'm, I'm a big fan of, of upgrading to that. Um, when the shop that I own, Thunder Fury, also up, upgraded, um, we also opened up a new revenue stream that we didn't think about. Other small garage shops that wanted to make bigger films. So I made it known, hey, we can do bigger films. So every now and then I'll get a text message of like, hey, I need to output something bigger. I'll hook up my buddy Mike and he'll go ahead and he'll just click output, charge him for that film. And it's a good business to business transaction, helps build relationships. Um, so there's there's lots of, lots of things you can do with that. Excellent. Well, as we move out of the dark room, onto the shop floor, I got a question. I got my Pantone book. I had it for a couple of years. I've been leaving it next to the window. Is that all right? Can I still use it? How often do I need to update my Pantone book is my question. Well, the pros answer this one. Brent, what do you think? I mean, as long as you're taking good care of it and, uh, you know, I, you know, I, we've got we've got Pantone books that we've had for 10 years. I mean, we don't leave them by the window, you know, to get exposed to lights or to, because obviously that will that will hurt your color accuracy. But, you know, we do stay on top. There are things that change. And so, you know, we'll, uh, you know, we'll invest. It's always great to have a good Pantone book around. You know, we've got, we, we invest heavily in that, you know, one for every two artists that we have on our team to ensure color accuracy. So it's definitely an important thing to have in the shop. Otherwise you're going to be making product that doesn't, doesn't match, you know, licensing standards or, or other issues that come with royalty art that you have to have an exact color match. So, Definitely invest in, in your Pantone books. Yeah, Nick uh, Nick Mar uh, Nick Wood. What do you What do you think? Yeah, precisely right. You know, especially with the uh, the new color editions. You know that there is annual color editions, so there's there's that aspect of it. Um, I'm kind of a bad example because I think this thing's probably nine years old, something like that. So, you know, I think it's about that time that I pull the trigger on a new Pantone book, but. Uh, I don't know, I think, I think best practices with a Pantone book, you know, oftentimes at print shops where you see it is at the design computer and at the ink mixing station, if it's at the ink mixing station, take care of, you know, don't, don't mix your colors and hold the spatula right next to it. Do a drawdown, pull the Pantone to the drawdown as opposed to, uh, you know, get the, getting the Pantone book gunky and, and inky and all that good stuff. So yeah, yeah like, like, uh, covered, like, 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 so ink solutions to like clean the ink off. They're spraying the panda book, wiping it off. They're wearing wearing down the coating. On right. Um, yeah. And, and uh, yeah. Nick Martin, you said like keeping it. And I've seen a lot of this. Like there'll be a nice, really pretty natural sunlight ink mixing area, which I highly recommend. If you can have natural sunlight in your ink mixing area, it's going to give you the, the, the most realistic read of your actual Pantone color. But have a drawer to put that Pantone book in. Right. Pull it out, right. use it, put it out of the sunlight, treat it like a vampire. It hates sunlight, right? Just like <laughs> out quickly, do what it has to do, back in the back in the drawer. It's it's October now. I'm already thinking about vampires, right? So put it put it back. That is in the, the quote the of the that's the <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm gonna make, make a t-shirt. It was a Pantone yeah. book with vampire teeth. <laughs> we'll, we'll market that for Printago. Um, treat it like a vampire. <laughs> treat it like a vampire. But honestly, I, if you can, it, it's a write-off for your business. I think a good a good practice. I think uh, Nick Wood and I have talked about this too. I mean, yeah, it's like 180 bucks to get the 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 two sixty-five and two. It's yeah, like it's coated and uncoated. Um, yeah, they're not cheap. Every two years, I think, just make it a habit. Make it a consumable every two years. Now, you don't have to get rid of it, right? But now that gets passed on down to the guy in the press, right? Make sure that the person that's actually in charge of the color has the most updated version to be in charge of the color. Because once you have a panto book to a press operator, it's as good as dead, right? We already know that. It's as good as yeah. dead. They're going different pages out. They're going to just mess it all up. But make it a hand-me-down and just replace your, your ink mixers every two years, I think, is a good rule of thumb. They recommend annually. Um, but they like making money annually too, right? For sure. Now, as we're bringing that, yeah. oh, go ahead. Nick. I, I was going to say there, there was a there was an app back in the day. The, it was an actual like span the Pantone sponsored app, but you could take a picture, you know, so long as it was a natural light, and it would auto extract on your iPhone, and it would auto extract whatever Pantone. It was the coolest thing. It was like ten it's, bucks, but they it's ten, they it's ten bucks. A, it. It's ten bucks a month. I have it. Uh, it's 10 oh, right. Okay. Um, the, I would say it's about 70% accurate. Um, yeah, I think it's, yep. I think it's cool because I'll just go across something in life that I think has like the most gorgeous color harmonies. And like when, as a printer, you guys know what it's like, you're walking around and you're like, that is gorgeous. And you're like, it's a, a dead flower. What are you talking about? Right. But the colors are gorgeous. Right. So I'll actually pull that out then and I'll take the photo from the Pantone app and it will extrapolate what they are seeing in that color. And I'll now have a color harmony that I can save and I can actually utilize and design down the road. Um, but yeah, that, that's a, it's, it's an awesome app. I don't recommend using that for actual proofing. Uh, Pantone actually has some sponsorships with some other uh, really high end tools where it will be a dead match for it. You kind of like put it on it and it has like a light inside of it. It'll check a Pantone that way. Um, I wouldn't recommend the Pantone app for that, but if you want to be a nerd like me, for sure get it. Cause it's fun. Sweet. <laughs> Great, Cody, Cody, one of our one of our awesome customers. He's like, I have it. I use it all the time. So call out to shout out to Cody. Good to see you, Cody. Um, now we're bringing the screen out to the press and thinking back to the art. I got two questions that I, I want to hear your all thoughts on. Why does dots per inch matter? And how small of a dot can I realistically expect with my screen? Tell me about DPI. Brent, all you, homeboy. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to volley that one back to you. All right. <laughs> um, so, I was going to say Marcotte. Let's, let's get that. Um, so DPI, sometimes also known as LPI, um, is going to really be – I think we touched base on this a little bit on at 102 with, uh, with Mike Ramirez. Um, it's going to be your dots per inch, your lines per inch. Um, so think about this when you talk, talk about, like, your screen mesh, right? Your screen mesh, if you're looking at it, 230. What that's saying is that in every one by one inch area, you've got 230 openings. So DPI works the same way. How many dots per inch you're actually going to hold or how many lines per inch you're going to hold, right? So DPI is gonna be really important for helping figure out what mesh count to use. And I believe we actually gave away that asset last week uh, of a, a, a mesh cheat sheet. Um, but a rule of thumb, uh, and I get, I get people will give me a hard time with rules of thumbs because yes, they can be broken and oftentimes they sometimes are better broken, right? But a rule of thumb is called the one fifth rule. Uh, I find it also works the one fourth rule, but it's called the one fifth rule, right? Where you take your DPI and it looks like we just posted it there too. You take your DPI on whatever your output is. 
So uh, traditionally, we're going to see that most people starting off using like an Epson 1430 are outputting at anywhere between 35 to 55 LPI. Uh, I'd recommend sticking around 45 to 55 LPI um, as you're starting off. And so if your output has any fine line detail or any halftones, you're going to want to make sure that you utilize this one fifth rule then. So you take your 45, you multiply that by five, and the closest screen you have in-house is now the screen you should use to help try to make sure that you're properly bridging and that you're properly holding your dots and that there's actually somewhere for the dot to land, right? If you try doing that same output on a 110, you're gonna basically be saying, hey, Mesh, do the impossible, hold a dot on an opening where there's nowhere for it to bridge, and it's gonna wash out. You're gonna end up with a lot of your fine line detail having a lot more of a sawtoothed edge. And we don't like that, obviously, and that's not a good look, unless you're trying to go with like a cool old vintage, like terrible print, then sure, go that route. Um, but having proper DPI is going to really help that. Now, that being said, over the last couple of years, it's been a really fun uh, journey to watch the industry uh, really take things a couple steps ahead. So uh, years back, I spent five years as the production manager of a shop that was doing some out of this world four color process work, um, partially because they couldn't do SIM process work. At the time, I wasn't as robust of an artist as well, so I had a harder time with that. Um, but out of this world, uh, four color process work. And we actually used an image setter. So a legitimate image setter that would make film, not the way we're thinking about inkjet film, but actually through a fixer bath image setter. So we were actually holding 120 LPI on film. Now, what does it actually mean? Was our shirts 120 LPI? No, right? When you're going through a screen, that already degradates what that dot can do. Then once you go on to a woven, which is what a shirt is, right? it also drops down to what the shirt can do. So we're spending all this time and money making 120 LPI uh, image processed film when really we're probably hitting closer to 85 LPI in the finished good. Now, there's a lot of phenomenal people out there that I look up to immensely. A great example is uh, Danny, Denver Print House, right? Uh, Lon Winters, Graphic Elephants. These guys that are just out of this world geniuses of what they're doing. And a lot of them are, had really kind of pushed the boundaries on like 75 LPI and what they could do. And now I'm seeing a lot of them, I don't speak for them, but I'm seeing a lot of them going back to 55 LPI, 65 LPI kind of tops and holding phenomenal detail. Because there's a bit of where you go too high, you start muckying up the design, right? You start getting so small, these dots are, are so tiny, you have a hard time even holding them. And then when you are holding them, you're kind of just creating too much noise in the print. And the human eye can only pick up on so much naturally anyways, right? Um, it's some of those designs where like you get close, it looks ugly, you walk 30 feet away, you're like, oh, there it is. It kind of works the same way. So it's a, it's a mixture of science and tactile uh, realism, right? So what is the best that we can do and what is the best that we actually notice the difference? Um, so for the, for the most part, I think that people should really be looking at parking their, their DPI anywhere from 45 to 65, depending on the kind of work you're doing. Um, but end of the day, just test, test, test. Uh, put it out, output things, see how it looks, uh, make film, make a screen, print it, right? Do a crazy halftone test where you've got, you just make a bunch of blocks of 1% uh, to 100% halftone dots and put it out at 45, put it out at 55, put it out at 65, and then go put them on screens and then go print them, right? You're gonna find like, man, I'm not, I'm not hitting half of these. You change your exposure times, you change your coding thickness, your EOM to help make sure you're holding your dots. Uh, they, they all really work. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a relationship. They all are going to be part of that. Um, so if you're, if you're new and you're starting and you're like, I don't even know this stuff, 
just go ahead and just put it at 45. Just make your life easier, right? If you start seeing that your halftones aren't coming out that great, they're coming out too um, old school, right? They're like a Ben Day dot, like you're like a, like a, an old an old piece of art, right? Like a Lichtenstein, these giant halftones. Um, up up your DPI, it's going to then allow for that to get smaller, right? Um, but if you also want that cool Lichtenstein-esque print, and you've only been at 55 LPI, have some fun. Put one at 35 LPI and see how much more exaggerated those dots get. It can be a really cool way of doing art, and I actually really love having a, a low LPI, a low DPI uh, dot to get that old school 70s vibe in some prints. Um, so play with it too. Don't don't really say it has to be one way or the other. Test it, see what you like. You may find that certain pieces of art you actually output at different DPIs for that. Awesome. Roberto has a follow-up yeah. question. Can I, can I add something? Oh, sorry, Nick, go ahead. Oh yeah, I, I wanted to, to kind of piggyback on that, uh, on what Matt was saying. When you print those tests, keep them by your design computer so you can really see you know, what that 10%, what that 20%, what that 30% is gonna look like on screen. So when you're, when you're going through that artwork, you can really have a, a good visual representation what's going to come out on press so yeah good that that rule of five matt that's uh that's worth tuning in right there that's a that's a genius <laughs> one so. well going off dot roberto has a real good question dot game is that something that needs to be managed or taken care of on what occasions would you want to be concerned about that and how would you address it all of the experts feel that one Marcot. So, I'm, I'm, no Marcot, you, you jump in yeah may do it okay um, you guys do know more than, than, I, than I do, so please interrupt or jump in at any time. So dot gain is natural. Um, so what is dot gain? Let's first start there, right? We talked a little bit about this in 102 with Mike Ramirez. So um, when you build up your stencil, you're going to have your EOM, your emulsion over mesh percentage, right? So you're actually building a gasket in which this is exaggerated, obviously, right? But you're building a gasket in which you're going to flood your ink and then print through and drop that gasket onto your print. Now. Uh, what happens very naturally, I think we may have lost lost Brent possibly, he was having some internet issues, but we still got Nick, so we're good. Um, thank you, Brent, for joining us while you could though. Um, so what happens is that dot, as it goes through, it's going to actually gain in size a little bit. And the thicker your stencil, the more it's gonna gain. So that's actually a good way to know if you're coating your screen too thick, you start going into some fine dot detail mm -hmm. and you are seeing those dots really gaining in size, right? So dot gain is very, very normal. Um, once you find a good, uh, a good amount of EOM percentage and your exposure is correct, you can actually start now building your art to anticipate that gain. So a lot of the best shops that are doing a lot of these award-winning printing, what they're actually doing is they do enough tests to figure out, okay, we're gaining roughly 1%, 2%, right? So what they'll actually do before they go output, they will choke their dots an additional 1%, 2%. So that way they're saying, we know that we've got good old EOM, everything's looking perfect. The only thing is, is our dots are gaining a slight amount. So they'll go ahead and they'll anticipate that and they'll pre-choke for that gain. Now, I've actually heard some really fun uh, theories about the opposite, which is on water-based. Oftentimes we actually see not a dot gain, but a dot choke. So what happens is we're actually seeing water-based start to accumulate around the outside of that dot and it it's kind of morbid. We'll talk more about this in a couple of weeks when we've got uh, our guest for water-based printing. But uh, water-based printing, I think about printing with blood. I got vampires in the mind today, guys. Um, so think about blood. Blood, blood wants to blood wants coagulate. To it, coagulate. Exactly. it wants to coagulate. Um, so it, it starts to coagulate around that rim of your actual dot. 
So it starts to naturally show. So some of the best jobs that have also been there have actually been able to uh, output that and actually anticipate that, that show, show, which is, which is, which is great. great. So, so I think, I think did we lose Martin, Martin, we got, we him, got back. him back. <laughs> All right. All right. Um, um, but that, 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 free, that, that free, free choking, choking plan, plan allows, allows for it after, after you start, you start the beginning of print, print to drop, to drop down. down. First, yeah. yeah, and to and piggyback, piggyback off, off that, that um, we have we some have curve some settings. Curve settings that we, that we, we prefer people use not only on accurate, but their eye image. There's a bunch of different output methods there. But yeah, we've kind of curved things where we be like our output. Hey, Nate Martin. I think you got some feedback going on your audio, buddy. Sure, let me take a look here. Thanks, Cody. I was hearing it too. It's just us now. We got the. There we go. We're back. Cool. Cool. Sound better? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, talk, yep. Though. That's we perfect. Feedback from us talking. We're good, and we're back. Uh, so where we left off before yep. that whole thing was uh, with water base actually anticipating that that choke, and so you're actually in the opposite. You're actually making it a larger dot to anticipate that choke. So you can get real nerdy and sciencey with stuff. Um, that I, I always say, do it, please get in there, get your hands dirty, make some messes. Um, but dot gain, just so you know, it is normal. Don't think that you're doing something wrong if you're gaining dots, right? Um, but know that there's ways of going about that. The first thing I would say before you start changing your dot size and output is I would say you're probably going to need to first look at your tension of your screen. The same thing. If your screen's too loose, as it flexes down, that dot opens up and then contracts before it actually drops that ink down. So make sure you've got good tension and then make sure you've got good stencil thickness. Uh, that's going to be the first way to go before you start actually anticipating dot change because then you're anticipating dot change, but it's actually not a controlled variable. So you start changing the size dot on your output, but you're sending it to a variable that's constantly changing because you don't track your screen tension or your EOM percentage. Um, Nick, what, what were, Nick Wood, what were you saying before we kind of went uh, glitchy there for a second? <laughs> I think I think I think now we lost Nick Wood. You there? Yeah. Hey, buddy, it lagged out for a second. Um, I was going to add in there to off contact, off contact. It's mm, it's harder to yeah. measure on a manual, um, but just kind of keeping like a really good idea and keeping it consistent. That's a that's a big one too. What do you What do you like, uh, Nick Wood, for uh, a good rule of thumb for off contact? Three. Uh, quarter inch eighth of an inch somewhere i mean it just depends you know uh, yeah eighth of an inch <laughs> let's go with the 16th eighth. yeah um just kind of depends so on you know one of my cheats that i've always done for a long time that people kind of get it, it helps out is have a stack of nickels at your press mm -hmm. um so what i like Absolutely. to do is i like to put nickels on all four corners and one in the center yep. uh, you can also get yep. uh, the sheet sheet metal that's already that thick too right and put that down and you want the screen to just ever so slightly graze that nickel when it comes up, but put your garment on there first, right? If you're yeah. printing a hoodie, put the hoodie on there, then stack your nickels, and then check your off contact so it's just grazing ever so slightly. Uh, on a manual press too, it's really important to yep. check your pitch, right? If your screen comes down and your pitch is gonna have different off contact, you can, you're gonna know that your dots down here are smaller than your dots up here are, right? Because as it comes down, it also flexes and opens up. And once again, you're kind of opening up a bigger area for that dot to stretch through. Um, so check your pitch, make sure it's consistent. And then, I mean, have 
have uh, 25 cents in nickels at your press and now you're going to start losing money to your press operators. Um, but try to start having some nickels at your press to double check your off conduct. And you'll get the feel of it too. I mean, there's a lot of folks in this, in this chat right now that I'm sure uh, can go to their press, drop it down, just push their screen. They're like, it's good. And you will get to that point with that muscle memory. You're like, yeah, that's, that's, that's good off contact. Uh, but to check, run the nickels. And also you should be doing uh, regular uh, preventative maintenance on your actual press and helping make sure that your, your off contact is correct. Your split is correct, right? All these different things to really help your registration as well as help prevent your dots from gaining uh, outside the realm of normal. Yeah, great question, Roberto. Moving away from printing, moving more to the business side of things, Dave has a really good question. What are some of the big shop practices that little shops can implement to help dial in the artwork process? Like approval, separation, standards. What do you think some of those big shop practices that little shops can implement? I'll, I'll jump in on that one. Standardizing a proofing template, standardizing a registration template. If you're deviating per customer, per garment, it's just, there's too much data loss. Um, one thing that I really like is including the Printabo number on your proofs. So a customer goes, yeah, it's like, you know, approved, let's rock and roll. And then you have to go back and, and find, you know, what email was sent, what communication was sent. So Printabo number on the proof, um, you know, calling out as much data on the proof, even if it's, it seems a little redundant, Pantone numbers, you know, some people will even hide layers of print order in their proofs, which is actually pretty smart. So standardizing output, standardizing proofing. Those are the two. Uh, and, and Marcotte's, to Marcotte's point, keeping track of those files, the data storage, like pulling. If you can start foundationally when your shop is small, storing files correctly, once you scale, it's like, you know, this is our process. This is how we find files. So, but yeah. So I'll volley to Matt. So. No, I, I couldn't agree more. Those, those are awesome points, uh, Nick. The other thing I'd say is um, with Printavo, and I don't want to make this a sales thing, right? But Printavo Premium has the ability for production files. Um, I love yep. this. And I, I, even, I have a lot of people I talk to like, oh, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a two-man shop. I'm a three-man shop. I, I, I'm not going to – I can't go premium. That's okay. I would say you should. I, I'm a big, big fan of taking the two, three, four, four-person shops – and giving them the optics of something much, much larger and also speeding up their profits. So yeah. what I do, what I do for, for Sound and Fury and then also other shops I work with um, is I have them on premium. And then what they're doing is they, they first off, they make that working art file, right? And they have the, the correct uh, nomenclature and how they're naming that. But once they're done, they actually have that final good to go art file. They upload that set file as a production file, right? That way, if they ever have to go back and reference it, it's right where everything else is being referenced to. The job, the, the, the cost, the, the PO number, all that right there. Also, when it goes to your, your computer to screen room, right, they are loading Printavo. They're dragging it over to the rip. They're good to go. I go one farther, right? So you upload your production art file. You have it there. You duplicate your job and they come back six months. It's still there. Now, what happens when you're on press then, right? You print the job. It looks awesome. Take a photo of that finished shirt and upload that as a production oh, file. Yeah, so now that's on a, that job, worth its weight in gold. Exactly. You've got you've got your art file, set art file right there. No more looking in your drive or looking in your Dropbox to find it or finding out like which final dash final dash final is it actually right. It's the only one in there. Now you've got a photo <laughs> of the actual shirt itself, and I go one more. 
I also take a take a whiteboard. You use lots of different ways, right? But I think the best way to do it is take a whiteboard and you can cut some cut some vinyl and you can transfer to that whiteboard. You can have uh, press number, uh, press operator's name, sequence, right? So if your press is 10 colors, one through 10, right? Colors, they, they put them in other, they tell you your flashes. Then you even go further. You have your squeegee durometer. You have your squeegee angle. You have your speed, right? You put all that information there. And by having a whiteboard at the press with magnets in the back of it, right next to the dryer, all they have to do is real quick, grab the dry erase marker, which I have on a, on a, a string, so they can't lose that too. And they quickly fill that out and they take a photo with that iPad. They upload that as a production yeah. art file too. So now when I'm doing a post-mortem as, as the production manager, right? I can go back into that file. I can see here's the working art file. Here's the photo of the shirt. Here's the sequence. So now six months later, that customer comes back and says, hey, I want that again. It was awesome. Well, right now what has to happen? You have to go, okay, cool. Sounds good. Hey, do we have a, a, a shirt? Do we save one? Oof, do, we, do we have a scrap rag maybe that hasn't been printed over that we have? Um, what do we have, right? Well, now you got a photo of it. So when you duplicate that quote in Printavo, everything transfers over, right? All, the notes are there, the production files are there, the tags are there. So right away, I already say, cool, sounds good. Duplicate, I update the quote, I send it off. They approve everything, and once it goes back to press, they now can click production file, there's the picture. They look, they compare. They also pull up the, the sequencing and they make sure it's the same. Or they say, you know what? This little change, I think it's better. Awesome. Go ahead and update the sequence and re-upload that picture. But I always recommend having at least those three things in your production files and the time savings, the accuracy on the, on the replication of that job are massive and it can help offset that cost of premium pretty easily. Can I... Can I piggyback on on Matt's thing there? I, I saw a, a production um, a production note sheet the other day that blew me away. Actually, I, there's two customers. So Colin at Lone Mountain and then uh, Daryl at Colortex. Daryl at Colortex was even da uh, documenting the humidity in the shop on the daily. So we had uh, you can go to Home Depot and, and buy a humidity meter. You pop that you know whatever part of the shop you should have one in the dark room pop that in the shop, note down the humidity. Um, but then what Colin did at Lone Mountain is he had a, a picture of a circle of the press, you know, all the heads, all he meant, you know, squeegee pressure, how fast it was going, what Pantone. So just seeing that circular representation of head, you know, color, color, flash, you know, whatever the, the color sequence was, was a really cool visual representation. So yeah, just uh, documenting that stuff is for, for reproduction is key for sure. Totally agree. Totally think that if you have your information at the ready all in one place, you're going to have it a lot easier when you have to do that recent job. But hey, I'm wearing a print cover shirt, right? Um, so here's a question. A lot, you know, everything's weird with hiring right now. And I hear from a lot of the staffs I'm talking to that they maybe had to downsize their art department. Or I hear from other shops that they're just starting up and they're doing a turnkey. They're doing every single thing from start to finish. So my question is for you both. When do you hire an artist? When do you realize everything that Nick, the Knicks and Matt talked about the last hour is over my head? When do you hire somebody else to handle this? What do you guys think? So I'll take this one first. If you're okay with that, Wood. Um, I think now in the current the current day of what we have op options for, I, I would say that you shouldn't. If you enjoy being a pixel pusher, which I do, right? 
and you're okay uh, spending extra time outside of the work time, like you, you're okay to spend a couple hours in the evening uh, working on art to better your skills and hone your ability, then you should do that. And that's gonna make you a much better uh, production manager or whatever your position is, right? Um, but if you're someone who's like, yeah, it's neat, I kinda like it, but I, I wanna have family time, I wanna have alone time, I wanna just have anything that's not just me being a shop owner and being busy all the time. Um, in the current state of things, I don't know if I would really hire an artist. Um, what I would probably do is I would look toward Graphic Source um, and, and I, I'd reach out to them and I'd utilize what they have to offer. Uh, I mean, if you're really, really small, they've got the, the a la carte options. Um, there's, there's lots of them out there. I just trust Graphic Source because I've seen their facility and I, I've worked with them long enough. Um, and I would do the a la carte option, just be like, hey, guys, separate this for me. Um, maybe you won't make as much profit margin on that job, but what is your time really worth? That's one thing that I think that I know we're kind of deviating off of the question, but understanding your your value is really, really huge, right? And if you're the person who's in charge of sales, in charge of morale at the shop, uh, in charge of the company overall, your time is very, very valuable. So if you're spending two, three, four extra hours a day trying to do something that you just know you're not the best at, do what you're good at. Go rally the yeah, forces, go out on press, go help generate sales, go have a dialogue with your customer base and make sure that they know that you're there for them. And then send that work out. You can say, well, I need that extra $20 every art piece I'm doing to help generate revenue for the company. No, you don't. You need to spend that $20 to have it done. And then you go get a couple more jobs in that time. You go reassure uh, the people that you're working with uh, what you're able to do and why you can do it for them. And you let the pros do what they're good at. And I think graphic source is obviously some of the pros that have insanely effective infrastructure. Uh, and we've actually got some really good ways to actually utilize them within Printavo, uh, where you can set them up as a, as a user. You can have statuses. If anybody's interested, I've got a great uh, status line that uh, Stephen Fair Campus Inc. has utilized with graphics that's been killer to help automate a lot of those processes to, to get the art and then lets him focus on what he does best, right? Getting more work and uh, being an, uh, just an awesome human, right? So. I would say in this day and age, unless you're like friends with somebody who's an artist that's willing to also like uh, come in and put the sweat equity into things, um, mm -hmm. I would say other than that, it, right now it doesn't make that much sense to uh, hire an artist for me. And I'm not trying to not let people have jobs. Uh, of course, if you're a bigger shop, have an artist on hand because you should, should do a QC on the, on the work coming from graphic source or anywhere else. Still make sure that's going to work, and there's also going to be like the quick turn one call job that you don't need to send out to GraphX. Have that person there to help be a QC person and be your interim between things. So if it's your first person, you're growing big enough, you can afford the one artist. Great. If you're a small, small shop, you're doing it. I, I would rather see you go with probably getting like the 20 hour a week person from GraphX or just going a la carte. Uh, but uh, Nick Wood, what are your what are your thoughts? I think we might have lost. I think we might have lost Nick Wood too. Up, oh, I see him kind of glitching. There you are, hey Nick. Hey, sorry about that. Hey, yeah. To piggyback on that, it's uh, you know stepping back four years. There was no such thing as as outsourcing that or or having that person you know run your Printavo queue. So, utilizing the resources that are out nowadays, like I wish I had that when I had my shop because you know I'd fumble around and and three hours into a project that wouldn't save or or I wouldn't have the auto save on. Um, it just, it's like, what's your time worth? And, and precisely what Matt was saying, you know, the, your, as the business owner, as the owner operator, as the, the production manager, your time spent, 
significantly better ensuring customers are ordering, tracking orders, following up, like as opposed to, you know, I, I refer to the artwork side as the foundational side of the business. So if you're proofing, I, I would venture to say it's probably not a good use of time. So yeah, just allowing allowing people that do that day in and day out to uh, to focus on that specific task is is huge. We got some, some comments over here I wanna to touch base on. Um, Dave Q uh, asked about some of those statuses. Dave. Um, I, I, can, I can really, we can, we can break it down. You can also uh, email, if you want to email uh, Nick at Brintow.com, I can also give him uh, that resource of, of what uh, Stephen Farrig was, was nice enough to share with us. Um, but it's literally just building statuses that- I'll, I'll pass it to Dave right now. Yeah, you, oh, there we go. Uh, so uh, Nick Whittle send it over to you. You can, you can customize the statuses when you set up with, with, uh, with graphic source to be whatever you want it to be. Um, but a good basic, do this, this done for whatever. So need mock, mock done. Need vectorized, vectorized done. And it's letting them actually go ahead and change the status to the done version and then have the communication with that person in your production notes. So name your artist and put the note for them and then put that status to them. It'll status change notification, trigger them. They'll read the note. They'll do their job. They'll change to that status done version, which then also triggers a notification to the artist or whoever is important within your building to do those things. I also really want to point out Cody Hogan. Because of graphic source and Printavo, I've doubled from last year to this year. Uh, I don't know if you guys know, there's also a worldwide pandemic going on. So the fact that Cody was able to do that during this year says a lot about Cody and what he's able to do. So that is freaking fantastic, Cody. Thanks for say saying that. That's awesome. Awesome to hear that, Cody. And, um, and he's not and he's not paid to say that. He even just right no. there. The <laughs> Thank you so much for making, <laughs> making that clear. <laughs> we'll, we'll pay you after, Cody. <laughs> so here's a question it, it sounds it, you've convinced me outsourcing is the move how do i communicate with this outsourced artist you know and i don't just mean how do i change my print status notification i mean what do i want to tell this person to make sure i get it done efficiently and how should i expect this person to communicate back and forth with me nick wood that's you homeboy. boy Hey, you're gonna have to repeat it. My my internet's lagging a little bit, so I'm I'm, I'm gonna need to hear the question one more time, buddy. Sorry about that. So, I'm convinced that outsourcing is the move. It's gonna save me a lot of time. But how do I communicate with this person? What should I be telling them? What are the details they need to know? And how should I be expecting they're gonna communicate with me? My guy, dude. I hate to say it, it lagged out again. Um, I got, type the type the question. I got so, okay. Um, the, the best way is to communicate with the graphics or the artist. Uh, I, I think that what we just kind of talked about with Stephen Farrig's uh, example is the best, right? Less is more. Um, so the first thing is the onboarding experience when you're dealing with somebody like Graphic Source. Uh, I, I'll say this openly. I don't work for Graphic Source. I think I could say it a little more openly, right? Um, the onboarding stage can be a bit redundant and a bit of a of a process, right? But it's really important to, to really uh, incubate that time correctly. The better you onboard and onset and work with the artist to develop those clear communication channels, the better. I really like Farrig's take of making sure that that communication is just a status change notification with a pre-canned email already um, based on your status as you've got set. And then any minute details are just typed out in your production notes. So you literally type the name of the artist. So uh, Michael, right? Whatever, that's your artist's name, Michael colon and you type the instructions for that maybe even put a time step time and date and then you change your status to whatever you have to do right so if it's a proof and maybe the proof is already done 
but they actually said they didn't like it at 12 inches. It needs to be changed to 15 inches. Production note, Michael, please change proof to 15 inches. Status needs proof. He's going to go, okay, it's in my knee. It triggers him then. He looks in the notes, goes, needs proof. And you put the note, needs proof, updated 15 inches. Grabs that file, expands it, notes, re-uploads it, changes status to proof done, triggers notification again, right? The whole point in automating is that we don't want to have to have to be interacting with it so frequently. We're automating. If we're automating more parts to have to talk, what's the point in automating, right? So uh, spending this time really building that onboarding process and working with GraphX, the artists over there, to make that a, a clean process. Uh, it'll take two weeks, three weeks, a month before it's like finally crystal clear. Um, but I showed Stephen Fair graphic source and what they could do a while back. He has taken that ball and he's run like four football fields away from me now. With it. And it's like, good Lord, yeah. like everything else he does. Right. Oh, yeah. um, and it's, it's a smooth process. And I know that I, I, I won't speak for yeah. him, but I will. Uh, a lot of his success is that he's got is because he's able to, to really, uh, leverage this relationship that he's got with graphic source and his artists to be even more efficient and effective than ever before. Mm -hmm. One thing this so I, I totally I totally got the question now. It was the it was the communication, right? Um so so to yeah. piggyback off of what Matt said, like we've actually implemented some new processes where we meet up weekly. So when a new customer onboards, we have the the week where we we learn each other's fingerprint, we integrate, we make sure we're communicating because some people use Printava to store their files. Some people use Dropbox. Some people use Google Docs. So, so once we integrate, you know, that first week is essentially learning the fingerprint, seeing how we communicate. We, we recap on a Friday, discuss the wins, discuss the losses, how we can get better. You know, week number two, we start processing more efficiently. Um, recap at the end of the week. So we actually have like a four-week process where we're we're meeting every Friday just to make sure that you know there's no nothing's getting missed. There's no lag. Communication's good. Uh, but then secondly, we, we set up a Skype channel so that the, you have direct communication with the artists, screen share, calling, um, screenshots, you know, Printava order number X, Y, and Z is a rush. They're my best customer. You know, here's your cue. You need to jump this one and, and focus on it quickly. So, yeah. And, and on top of that, too, it's, it's actually really cool to see the artists uh, build a, a relationship with the shop as well, too. So it's, you know, there is a human being on the other end of the line, which is pretty rad. So. Yeah, that's that kind of sums it up in a in a very short little uh, blurb there. So, for sure, um, cool. Well, I don't want to leave. Oh, Matt, what do you think? Go ahead. Oh, with people uh, asking, well, okay, if I'm working with an artist that's in a different country, is that going to be a problem? Am I going to get good art? Um, part of why I I, I, I trust Graphics is I've actually been like that. I've been to uh, one of their facilities in, in Bangkok. It's phenomenal. Uh, I mean, a lot of times these people aren't necessarily given an opportunity to work in a nice air conditioned environment, uh, be able to have a secure place to go work. And it's really giving opportunity in a lot of second world countries for these people to have a good career. And they actually pay a really good living wage to these people in these areas. Um, so the way I look at it is, yeah, it, it might not be uh, a, an American that's getting the work um, in all cases, but it's a human that really is, has tried very hard to better themselves have a good skill set. They're getting, they're coming out of colleges in most of these places with these backgrounds in, in design uh, and already know these programs and they're phenomenal. And knowing that I'm giving another human an opportunity for a good career 
and you kind of become friends with them, right? When they're your rep that you're kind of talking to, you're, you're constantly going forth with them. You're working with them. It's not like you're working with like Michael, who's really like eight different people, right? It's actually that guy or that gal, right? So it's really, really important to have that too. Oh, there we go. We got a screen share going. Okay. Nick, you showing that? I'm not sure if any, everybody can see my screen, but these are the uh, the offices that, uh, that we have. Yeah, the Honduras, the Honduras office is the definitely the team that I interface the most with. And uh, what you can't really tell there is there's like Pantone pillars set up on the walls, which is yeah unbelievable. So, U.S. office in Dallas, uh, Calgary office, Honduras, India, Thailand. So this is only one of the five floors in Thailand as well too, which is, Matt has been there, and it's uh, yeah exceptional is uh, an understatement. It, it's uh, pretty crazy to see that that place operating operating as a, a unit for sure that's awesome you know brian had a quick question nick which option of graphics is going to get you yep. subscribe? what was that what was the Sorry, last part of the question which option of graphics will get you all the great things you just described brian i'm going to hit you up i know this is brian from uh from green gorilla um yeah there's the the staffing option is definitely going to be the best. So that's where that's where we pull directly from the person's Printavo queue. So, yeah, staffing is uh, I encourage everybody to look at that as a, a true option and it's scalable. Um, the best part about it is, you know, once we add in an artist, let's say you quadruple in business in, in 2021. We could then just we already have the, the SOP built for that shop. And then we just add on another artist. So it's really, in fact, in fact, um, Matt and I share a customer, uh, Springer, out, you know, you know Springer Design. Um, they actually are, are crushing it in 2020, which is awesome. So they just added another part-time artist. So it's pretty, pretty cool to see, you know, once the workload gets there and, and proofing needs to be done, you know, let's say, for instance, let's take Springer. They're proofing out anywhere from 30 to 40 proofs a day. Um, that's a lot of work for one person, no matter who, you know, no matter how seasoned they are. So we then added on a secondary resource to ensure that, that those 40 proofs are being done the same day. So it's pretty, pretty and awesome. They can, and they can have yeah. one artist that can now review the proofs, make sure they're good and do the quick fly stuff. So right. one person in house can now basically manage one and a half other people that are getting things done quickly, efficiently and correctly for a lot less overhead than having those employees in the building because then you have to worry about insurance, yep. right? Uh, and right. they're gonna call off sick, which if somebody calls off sick when you have an artist through GraphX, they're going to replace that person for that day while that person's sick. And they're always training more than one person on your process to make sure that if they do all call off sick, they've got that person there for you. Um, it, it's a no brainer to me. Yep. Um, and it's, it really comes back down to where I love where this industry is going. We're in a great space, so much sharing of, of, of information as well as work. What are you good at? What do you actually find value in doing? What makes you happy every day when you're doing it? Do those things. And then right. if you have to spend a, a tiny bit more right. to not have to do the things you hate doing, it's worth it because it makes you happier. It makes you better. And then you focus on things that you're good at, which is also going to help naturally bring in more revenue streams, right? So. If it's not what you love to do, precisely and, right, and, and you're not you know, good at it. Case in point. Case in point, Color Techs um, up there in Salinas, California. 
What's that? Oh, sorry. Yeah, I, there's a little bit of a lag. But yeah, Color Tech's up there in, in Salinas. You know, he he wants to be on press all day long. You know, the, the ping-ponging uh, designs back and forth to his customers. You know, he doesn't, there's no, there's no value. You know, it's not, it's not what excites him. So we, uh, we jumped on that foundational task and, you know, we, our artists can interpret, you know, it needs to be on a Royal blue. We need to resize it to X, Y, and Z. So all of that foundational work while he's printing our artists is in the background, handling that, that workload, which is spectacular. Love it. All right. One last, one question we got here from Brad Williams. Um, what line screen right. do you recommend for high end halftone art? Do you refer circle or ellipse dots? What is the lowest mesh? Um, for high-end aftones. Uh, so I would say the lowest mesh you should really look at for high-end aftones would be a 230. Um, that would be the lowest I would go. You can really do a lot of really cool stuff with a 232. You don't necessarily have to go to a 305, which a lot of shops do. Um, 230s or 305s, anything in between is gonna really get you some really high-end detail. Um, as well as when it comes to the ellipse or a circle, that's also going to be a preference. My preference is an ellipse, um, but I've seen some of the best yeah. artwork output both ways, but I'm a, I'm a fan of an ellipse. I find that it makes a, a more uh, stable dot. Um, and if it gains or chokes, it still holds better for me. Um, but that's really a preference, but good, good question. Great question. Well, with that, just any last second questions. If, they, if you have, you got two experts on the screen right now. Any questions for them? And we'll give them just a second, but I do want to thank you so much, Nick, for coming to join us, telling us all about art, uh, letting us know about graphics. And, you know, thank you to Brent, too. Thanks for uh, being here, Brent. And as always, thank you, Matt. As we're waiting for that last question, if there is one, I'm going to plug our two things. First, you can watch these right when they end, right here. It's going to give you the video replay right when it's over. And then Luke, Printable's content manager, is going to get these on the YouTube. We got the first ones on the YouTube already. If you prefer it on YouTube, watch it there. That's fine. Uh, and then, yeah, oh, one more thing. We got our next one coming up. Our next one, Printable University 104. We're doing this one on a Wednesday because a lot of the Printable staff is flying back to Chicago on a Thursday for the uh, Printable holiday party. But... It's going to be awesome. We're going to talk about standardizing operating procedures. And we're bringing in Jess on our customer success team to talk all about it and chart out your workflow and really think through it. So it's going to be really exciting. Sign up now. And, of course, you get the emails. It looks like you guys were so uh, so thorough. There's no questions. I'd love to see it. But, of course, if there is, you can always email us at any time. You got Matt at Printavo.com and Nick at Printavo.com. Any questions you have about printing or the printing industry, shoot them right to us. And then thank you, everyone, for watching. And especially thank you, Nick, for joining us. So great to have you oh, here. Yeah, thank you, guys. Yeah, man. Love to see your face. <laughs> this is a great I know, man. <laughs> That's very shared. Just saying. Awesome, guys. Well, thank you so awesome, much, guys. and we will talk to you soon. All right. Yeah. Bye.